Good to see everyone this morning. It's good to be here on this first day of the week to worship our God and to join in fellowship that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and to do those things that we've been commanded to do on the first day of the weeks. Thank you to our visitors for being here. You are honored guests and we appreciate you being here and hope that you find the, that we are simply trying to serve God as the New Testament dictates that we do. I wanted to start this morning by letting you in on a little secret. It's really not a secret at all. And that is this, that our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is not so blinded that we don't know what, we're, what we have faith in. Now, critics of Christianity sometimes accuse us of such. They say that we are blindly following after some kind of made-up doctrine, something that, you have, that man has created. And we're following after that. The agnostics would say that there can be no belief in God because they say nothing can really be known about God. That's what the agnostics say. The atheists go further and say there is no God. But ours, brethren, is not a blind faith. Ours is a faith that is founded on evidence, and the evidence is all around us. Our faith is founded on eyewitness accounts. And our faith is rooted in our belief in Almighty God. So this morning, I'd like for us to consider how faith bridges the gap. Look with me, if you would, in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It's a familiar verse to us. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right here, the Hebrew writer gives us a working definition of faith. And he describes it in this way, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if we... Look at a little example here. We're going to use this throughout our time here this morning. There we are on the left side. And we want to get over to the other side. You can think about that however you'd like. Great chasm, crossing over. But whatever you might see, you see there's a, a gap there that we have to overcome. And on that side over there where we want to go are the things hoped for. And the things not seen, those are the things, that's where we want to go. So how do we get there? How do we get to those things that we are hoping for, the things that are not seen? We know what things that's, that's talking about. Well, as we mentioned, the way we get there is by faith. Faith bridges that gap between where we are and where we want to go. And as we mentioned here, the Hebrew writer tells us, gives us some, some more about that faith. He tells us that, that faith is assurance and conviction. When we talk about getting to the things hoped for and the things not seen, we need to have assurance in our faith, and we need to have conviction in our faith. So what are some of those things that are hoped for? Well, it's a lot. It's a, it's a long list, isn't it? 
as a, as a Christian, even as a, a, a human, we, we hope for a lot of things. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus on three things that are hoped for. Forgiveness of sins. Closely related to that is salvation and a joyous life. So how do we get there? Well, of course, we know about our faith there. Our faith bridges that gap to get us to those things. So let's talk about each one of those things for just a moment. Let's talk about forgiveness of sins. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll look at a couple of passages here, and I'm going to be asking you to turn to several passages. So if you have your Bibles handy, please get them out and, and let's look. And the reason I want you to turn to a lot of these scriptures is I want you to be assured of your faith. I want you to be convicted in the things that we are saying, because they come from God's word. So please follow along if you have the ability. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it says there, And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we have in the midst of the very beginning of the church, this is the day of Pentecost when they're all gathered there together in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles and given them the knowledge and imparted the spiritual gifts that they need to go out and proclaim the gospel. And the people listening to Peter's first sermon here have been convicted of what they have done wrong and they ask, what shall we do? And this is what Peter tells them. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. This is at the very beginning of the history of the church. This is the reason that we believe and we are baptized so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Look over in chapter 13 of Acts. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 38. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is speaking of our Lord, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not free men from their sins. It took the law of Christ to be able to free men from their sins. And this is why this is so very important. Forgiveness of sins. This is why Jesus came to the earth. Look also over in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning verse 6, it says, To the praise of our glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed, which he purposed in him. The reason and the explanation of Jesus Christ is spelled out so beautifully here at the beginning of Ephesians. This was God's plan. This was the way God was going to redeem man back to him. And that can only come through the remission of our sins, the true forgiveness of our sins. And that can only come through one, and that of course is Jesus Christ. Being a child of God when we sin, God has made a provision for that as well. 1 John 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
John talks about it in his first letter. If you think you are without sin, you're wrong. Even as a child of God, we sin. But we've been given a way that we can be forgiven those sins. We pray to God. We ask him to forgive us. And he is faithful and just to to do that. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of those sins. Forgiveness of sins is so very important. But we have assurance that those things, that that the forgiveness of sins is possible through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Next on our list there was was salvation. Look with me over in Luke chapter 1. Here in Luke chapter 1, there's, there's a lot going on here. Angel Gabriel is pronouncing the coming of our Lord and Savior. He's also pronouncing the coming of this one John, who would prepare the way for our Lord. We come known as John the Baptist. And he's telling the parents of John, Zacharias and Elizabeth, about this one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And over in verse 67, Zacharias says this about the coming of John and the coming of our Lord. Beginning verse 67 of Luke 1. And and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished Redemption for his people, and has raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? To talk about the salvation that's coming to mankind through this one Jesus Christ. Here John is prophesying, uh, excuse me, Zacharias is uh, speaking the prophecies that are coming about his son John and about the coming of the Lord. And he says he's bringing salvation. This is a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. The salvation would come through his seed. A familiar passage to us, Romans 1 and verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we talk about salvation, we talk about salvation through the gospel, through the word of God. And Paul here is saying in Romans 1 that I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the things that I am saying. I'm not ashamed of this word that's going out, why? Because it has the potential, the ability to save men from their sins, to provide salvation for all mankind. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He knows its power, and that's available to us. There's an assurance that that's what the gospel is for. Titus 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Salvation is available to all men. We read there from 
from Romans, Paul says, to the Jew first, yes, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentiles. What does that mean? That means that Christ has brought everyone under the law of God, under his law, and has made salvation available to all mankind. Will all men be saved? No. Quoted there this morning about that narrow gate. That all men won't be saved because all choose not to. Those who seek to follow after God and to do what he has commanded will indeed be saved. Who doesn't want a joyous life? Who doesn't want a happy life? Is the life of a Christian without sadness, without heartache, without trials? No. But the life of a Christian can be a joyous life. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. We're not promised wealth. We're not promised honor or power or all those things that the world puts their stock in. What we are promised is an abundant life in Jesus Christ. And that's a joyous life. Look with me over in Romans chapter 14. Sometimes we get caught up in things. We get caught up in um, ceremonial, what we might think are ceremonial things. What does Paul say here in Romans 14, verse 17? For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this way serves Christ, is acceptable to God, and approved by men. That's a joyous life. Not eating and drinking, not washing of hands as, as, as our Lord condemned the Pharisees. That was the things that they were engaged in. We can be engaged in those ceremonial kind of things too, can't we? We can get, we can get lost in the ceremonial things that we might participate in. What does is, what is Scripture say here? It's not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a joyous life, and we have assurance of that. 3 John, verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. John's writing here to Gaius, and he's telling them that my greatest joy is to hear about God's children who are walking in the truth. And that comes down to us, doesn't it? If we're walking in the truth, what a joyous life we should have. Knowing our lives are being lived to God. Our lives, we are serving God in our very existence. And that's what John is, is talking about here. No greater joy than this, than to hear my children walking in the truth. We're obeying God, faithfully following. That's what we want people to hear about us, isn't it? That's a joyous life. What about those things not seen? Well, we have some big things that aren't seen. And on our list here, God, Jesus, and heaven. Those are pretty big things. We talk about our faith. We've got to have a lot of faith, don't we, if these things aren't seen. But let me show you some things from Scripture about this. Let's start with our, 
with God. Go with me over to John chapter 6. <clears throat> what does this say? What do scriptures tell us about God himself? John chapter 6 and verse 46. This is our Lord speaking. He says, Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Turn back also in, in John, the, the first chapter of John's gospel. In verse 18. It says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So, is this a little bit of a head scratcher here? We talk about things not seen, and I've just proved from Scripture that God's never been seen. Well, let's talk about it a little bit more. In Hebrews 3, in verse 3, in describing our Lord, the Hebrew writer says that he is the exact representation of his nature. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Talking about God coming in the form of man. We have to have the conviction about God the Father, about seeing God the Father. And, and there's been a way provided. In John 14 and verse 9, Jesus here speaking to his apostles, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now Jesus also said that no one has seen the Father except him. But here as he's talking to his apostles, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And why? Because what we just mentioned there in Hebrews 3, he is the exact representation of his nature. If you want to know God, if you want to see God, you need to know about Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of his nature. Think about this also about God. A familiar passage to us here from Romans 1 and verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul here in his writing to Roman, the, the Romans is saying, you know what? God's been here all the time. Just look around you. You think this all happened by chance? These things happen because of a divine, intelligent creator. Not by chance. A creation. Everything around us proclaims God's handiwork and tells us about him. And through these things we see God. His, in, in, uh, his invisible attribute, his eternal power and divine nature, we can see those things by just looking around us. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, in this great chapter on faith, he says there, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. There's the conviction if we want to be pleasing to God, we must believe that he is. One of my favorite things there from Exodus chapter 2 where God just says, when Moses is asking, uh, in whose name shall I tell the children of Israel that I am leading them, that I come to lead them? And God says, I am. God is. And so we must believe that. We must believe that he is the great I am. There's our conviction. And as a child of God, 
it is impossible to please him without that conviction, without the faith that we need to have. What about Jesus? Let's think about this. Let's think about Jesus being seen. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus talking to his, his disciples, his apostles. While I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now notice verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth promise of my father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high he's instructing his apostles to stay there in Jerusalem we just talked about that the events that happened there in Acts chapter 2 and they're gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them but he says that you are witnesses to these things these men had seen him now they're seeing the resurrected Christ they were with him in his ministry saw him put to death. Now they're in the presence of the resurrected Christ. John chapter 14, verse 9. Again, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So those who have seen Jesus Christ have seen the very nature of God. They've seen his exact representation. I include this chart here. Don't let it overwhelm you, but part of it, and the reason I put it up here, is for overwhelming purposes. These on this column over here are the people who saw the resurrected Christ. Beginning with the empty tomb, those who witnessed that Christ indeed had risen, and there was an empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, other women, the two going on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, Peter, the ten disciples in the upper room, again some overlap in here because of scriptures, Seven disciples fishing, 11 disciples uh, on a mountain, 500 plus that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15. James, his disciples in the ascension, again, another instance where he sees him. Even Paul on the road to Damascus had saw the resurrected Christ. That's a lot of people who saw the resurrected Christ. So when we talk about Jesus being seen, we have eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Lord. Now, what about this? Have you and I seen the resurrected Lord? We haven't. John chapter 20 and verse 29. This is a familiar passage to us. This is part of Jesus' conversation with Thomas. Remember Thomas that he said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is resurrected until I can handle him, until I can touch the scars and put my hand in his side. And Jesus appears to him, and uh, he grants him that wish. He lets uh, Thomas touch him 
and the scars, put his hand in his side. Remember what Peter, uh, Thomas says? My Lord and my God. It took some convincing, but he was convinced. And Jesus goes on to say, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. You and I haven't seen the resurrected Christ. We have eyewitness accounts. We have a belief in those eyewitness accounts. And we have a belief in God and his holy scriptures that tell us that we can believe that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Overwhelming evidence. Overwhelming conviction that we should have. What about heaven? We read there from John chapter 14. In there in verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Do you think heaven is real? Do you think heaven is a place where we're headed? If we're faithful to him? Jesus says, I'm going there to make a place for you. That's pretty real. That's pretty convincing. If our Lord says it, I believe it. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. <clears throat> Paul lays this out about the things that are passing, the things that are temporal, and those that are eternal in the heavens. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, if this house we, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. As a child of God, we need to be groaning to get out of this tent, to get out of this body that we dwell in, that our spirit dwells in, so that we can go into that eternal home in the heavens. Not made with hands, but made by God himself. That should be our longing. Philippians 3 and verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are sojourners. We are aliens. We are strangers that are passing through this world. Because what we're headed to is our home in heaven. There's conviction. Because scriptures tells us that that home is out there waiting for us when this life is over. Back to our little illustration here. There we are. We're wanting to cross over. We read there from ele uh, <coughs> Hebrews 11 and verse 6 that we need to be pleasing to God. That if we truly want our faith to be a working faith, Understand that we have to be pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
So we got to have faith in order to be pleasing to God. If we want to cross over that gap over there so we can be pleasing to God, guess what we got to have? We got to have that same faith. Because guess what? It says there, um, it is impossible to please him. Uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So guess what? If we don't have faith, if we don't have faith, guess what also, also is going to fall away? We're not going to be pleasing to God. Because the scripture says it. It says, without faith, it is impossible to be pleasing to God. So what about those things hoped for, those things not seen, those things that are on the other side? What we've mentioned there is our faith bridges that gap. It gets us from one side to the other. And without it, it's impossible for us to cross over. And that faith is defined by assurance and conviction. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it comes down to this last question. Are you assured and convicted in your faith? Brethren, I just barely touched on the evidences for the things that we talked about this morning for the sake of time. I don't expect you to stay here till midnight. But just from scratching the surface, we, we are assured and we are convicted of our faith because of what we read, because of what God has told us. So are you assured and convicted in your faith? If you're not a child of God, I beg you to become one so that you can partake in all the things that we've talked about this morning, about being granted that citizenship in heaven. If you walk with God on your way there. If as a child of God you, you see your faith waning, if you're not assured of your faith, if you're not truly convicted of your faith, I beg you to renew your faith. To ask God to strengthen your faith and to fervently seek out his help. And he is faithful and just. He will hear your prayers. And he will answer those. Who bring the, those that bring you closer to him. Whatever your needs might be, we can help you with them. And you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.